iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? So you had these arms, you know, with these two claw-like, you know, metal grippers. Try and fail over and over and over again to pick this stuff up. And, you know, one of the objects in one of the bins was a, a lipstick whose cap came off and they walked into the, the lab on a Monday morning and it looked like there was blood all over the lab <laughs> and, you know, that someone had been horribly murdered there, you know, in this Google building in Mountain View, California, but it was indicative of the way these systems learn. And what he liked to say was that if things had gone horribly wrong like that, they knew they were on the right track. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I am Danny Fortson, your host and the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And we have a little something different for you this week. We have an author on the pod. And trust me, you'll want to listen all the way to the end on this one because it is packed with amazing anecdotes and insights into all things artificial intelligence, which of course is everywhere these days. But why is that? How is it that AI, which was this technology that for years, decades, had promised the moon and never delivered uh, and gone through several kind of deep, dark, long winters, how is it that it has finally become so pervasive, and in some cases to great effect, and in others to absolutely terrible effect? Well, we have just the man to answer all of those questions. So with us this week is Cade Metz. He's a tech reporter at the New York Times, and he's the author of a recently published book called Genius Makers, the Mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. And it's really a fascinating book that just looks at those issues I'd laid out. And he does it in a really interesting way by basically following the handful of academics and researchers who kind of kept the faith in these core ideas around AI, uh, basically when no one else did. And now they're at the heart of what's really driving the field forward, which is specifically neural networks, which are these systems that basically can teach themselves really an astonishing array of tasks if you just throw them enough data, you know, from recognizing and translating the spoken word to beating the world's best player in Go and a million other things. So it's just a really fascinating read for anybody who cares about technology, but here you get the cliff notes. I'm giving you the best parts. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And if, you know, this is for anybody who cares about tech and how it will affect our lives in so many ways, big and small, going forward. So strap in. It's a wild ride, but I think you're really going to dig it. So without further ado, I give you Cade Metz, author of Genius Makers. 
Enjoy. So I finished the book uh, night before last. Fascinating. I encourage everybody to read it. And there's a lot of things I want to get to, but I think I want to start actually where the book starts in Lake Tahoe back in 2012, I believe. So if you could just explain kind of that opening scene, because I think I understand why you chose it. it. It really sets the scene quite well for what you then cover in the book and what's happening more broadly in in AI. What I often say is that that, that beginning of the book really chose itself. Uh, the book had to begin there. Uh, the book seeks to show what has happened with what we call AI over the decades, really, and over the last decade in particular. And that moment in December 2012 in Lake Tahoe was a real inflection point. It was a moment uh, when a certain technological idea called a neural network started to work. And it didn't just start to work. As it started to work, the biggest tech companies on earth, Google, Microsoft, Baidu, and China realized that it was starting to work, and they really jumped on it. But what that story reveals is that there's this, this uh, piece of it that uh, most of the world didn't know about, that those big companies literally participated in an auction to acquire one of the key people who had helped nurture this idea, not just over the past few years, but over the decades. And that's what's really, it's it's almost, I mean, when you frame it like that, acquire the key people as opposed to a company. I mean, it was a company and the person, the main person is Jeff Hinton, who's a Brit and who's been on this, which we can talk about deep learning idea for decades. But it was really about, it's almost like a free agent signing in, <laughs> in sports. And so could you explain who Jeff Hinton is, why you know, they go to this conference in 2012 in Lake Tahoe, and he's kind of basically put himself and a couple of his researchers on the market. That's exactly right. Uh, and the sports analogy is a good one. And in fact, a research VP at Microsoft in the wake of this would talk about this auction in similar terms. It was like an NFL team acquiring a quarterback, right? The numbers were that high, and the dynamics were similar. It is about Jeff and his two students. In the months before the auction took place, they had built uh, a system that could recognize objects and images. So recognize cars, flowers, people in digital photos with an accuracy that no other technology had ever achieved. And they published a paper about this. Uh, and that's that's well known. But what what the world didn't realize is that in the wake of Jeff and his two students publishing this important paper, that Jeff realized how valuable his personal services would be and the services of his two students, right? They were among the few people on earth, literally, who had worked on this type of technology. And Jeff knew that he and his two students would be in demand. He already had an offer for $12 million for just a few years of work, two or three years of work from one of the biggest companies in China, Baidu, which is sort of the Google of China. And he realized there were other companies, including Google itself and Microsoft, who would be interested in him. And so he set up an auction and it played out uh, in Lake Tahoe in December 2012. 
And it's it's I think I think if it was Harrah's or Harvey's, I, I've spent many an hour in both losing small amounts of money. Um, but he's I think it, they've got a hotel room or a suite at the top, and then they just kind of the people from Google and Facebook or was it Face Facebook wasn't in the in the auction, was it? No, it was Microsoft and Baidu and a London lab called DeepMind, which most of the world were not aware of at, at the time. So what's the final price tag? It gets to $44 million. Which is basically what they're paying to hire Jeff Hinton and his two students. Exactly. Two graduate students who have not finished their degrees. <laughs> and Jeff Hinton, who has never worked in industry, they're hiring three academics for $44 million. Which is just kind of extraordinary when, I mean, just the facts of that on their face. And then a lot has happened since then, obviously. Google won that auction and, and that set them on a path, which we'll get into. But I think as a kind of fast forward to a second, I sent you a link to an article from Politico that we're recording on Friday. It's about noon. And in Europe, they're talking about effectively banning certain uses of AI. And I think it's a really instructive kind of moment to kind of reflect on where things have got to in terms of this technology and all the various uses. And I was just wondering, are you surprised because, you know, this this potential law, which hasn't kind of fully come out yet, but it's they're talking about banning it for a whole number of, you know, mass surveillance, um, social credit scores like they have in China, certain uses in, in law enforcement, like, you know, determining bail, this kind of stuff, given where you know, going back to 2012 in that hotel room in Tahoe, uh, are you surprised that the world has got to where it's got? Well, after writing the book and talking to hundreds of people in this area over the past few years, I'm not surprised at all. But what I will say is that in 2012, even Jeff Hinton, who was at the heart of this, and these ideas that he was auctioning off are the same ideas that are driving those surveillance systems, for instance, that you're talking about, right? So there's a direct through line. He and his colleagues were not aware of where this would go necessarily and where the problems might arise. And that's where the second half of the book really takes off, is when these ideas really take hold and they move into areas that really concern even its creators. Surveillance is just one area of concern there are others. The way these systems are built, and we can talk about that, they rely on enormous amounts of digital data. And that's the other thing that those proposed EU rules you're talking about seeks to crack down on, right? And it's, it's something the EU has been diligent about in the past in ways other parts of the world have not, right? Showing real concern for our personal privacy. That Digital data is an essential currency when it comes to these AI systems that we're talking about. So l let's talk about the technology because going back to Jeff Hinton and the, all the other people you end up covering in the book, I mean, is it fair to say that he was kind of chopping wood in the wilderness by himself effect in terms of this field of let's call it AI, you know, AI is almost like a marketing term at this point, but this area of computer science, I mean, he was kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, outsider, maverick, or, or not really doing what everybody else was doing. That's exactly right. When he entered graduate school in 1971, he was a student at the University of Edinburgh. 
He grabbed hold of this technological idea, that, which I've alluded to before, called a neural network. And I think it's worth describing what that is. And then we can follow Jeff's path. A neural network is a mathematical system that is loosely based on the human brain. But fundamentally, it's math. And it's a piece of math that can learn a skill by analyzing data. So the common example that I always give is if you take thousands of cat photos and you feed those into a neural network, it analyzes those photos. It looks for patterns that define what a cat looks like. And in the process, it learns how to recognize a cat. There are so many other systems that now work in this same way. When you speak commands into Siri, it's a neural network that recognizes the words that you speak. And it trains in that same way. You feed thousands of hours of spoken words into a neural network, and it learns, literally learns to recognize those words. But in 1971, when Jeff Hinton was in graduate school, that was an idea that almost no one on earth believed in. And he embraced it at that moment, which is fascinating in and of itself. Right, because at that at that time, computers were, you know, like calculators. I mean, in terms of their computing power and capabilities, I mean, they're super basic. They were. And that idea had worked in tiny, tiny ways, but couldn't do all the extravagant things that people had said it would one day do, like recognize voices or recognize objects and images. And so most of the world gave up on it for various reasons. Hinton still believed in it. And over the decades, as that, that idea would sort of ebb and flow in the estimation of even AI researchers, he kept working on it. And there were a few other people over the decades who did the same. And what that means is in 2010 to 2012, when the idea really started to work, there weren't that many people on earth who knew how to do this. Right. And those are the people that were in demand and that were snatched up by companies like Google. So what happens after 2012? Because it does feel like that was a moment, whether it was the publishing of the paper or the acquisition of Hinton and his his two students, you know, their company, I can't, it was called DNN Networks or something like that. DNN Research, yes. It does feel like that was a moment. So after that, what happens in terms of the technology and actually how it starts to manifest, you know, out in the real world and at these big companies? What's so interesting is that that single technological idea starts to work in many different areas. We mentioned two, speech recognition, and that actually happened around 2010. And Jeff Hinton was at the heart of that too. First, he and a few students change speech recognition. And this is the reason that Siri works like it does today, or the Google Assistant, or Alexa, that it can rec really recognize what you say. Then we have that moment where it works with images, and that has a knock-on effect. This is how self-driving cars, for instance, see the world around them. It's how they recognize pedestrians on the side of the road, or street signs, or lane markings on the streets. It's also how other robotics are progressing. Uh, we're seeing an improvement in the way robots can operate in a warehouse, for instance, and sort through items or help manufacture uh, various goods in manufacturing plants. They need to see the world, and they do that through a neural network. At the same time, this same idea can analyze all sorts of digital text, so articles and 
books and other content from the internet, and it can learn the vagaries of English, for instance. And then once it learns all that, that neural network can be applied to so many other services. It helps the Google search engine, for instance, understand what you type in. It's now driving what we call chatbots, so systems that can carry on a conversation. They're improving at a really rapid rate because of this same idea. And then we move into these areas that are causing concern. So you mentioned surveillance, facial recognition systems uh, used in police departments here in the U.S. or used in China to identify an ethnic minority, for instance. Yeah, the, uh, the, the other Uyghurs, areas, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and then the other area that's caused a lot of concern is autonomous weapons, right? This is the same technology that would allow, say, a self-flying drone to recognize what's going on around it and potentially use a weapon. Have you seen uh, the that little film, Slaughterbots? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy at Berkeley we've had on the pod, and I, his name escapes me now, but it shouldn't. He's a Brit. He's a professor. Stuart Russell. Stuart Russell. He's written, you know, wrote the one of the key textbooks on, on computer science AI, and he helped, I believe, consult on this. It was like a 10-minute little YouTube video that shows little kind of micro drones that have a little explosive charge. And you just, you know, it's very dramatic, but it's like you release a swarm of these and they go out and like, you know, start killing protesters and all kinds of things. But it was, the idea is like, look, this will be possible at some point with this technology. Maybe not possible today, but it's also gets this idea around AI of, which comes up again and again in your book, is this idea that in some places, it's incredible what it can do. And in other places, it's still really dumb. And we <laughs> did a deep dive on robotics once, and you know, somebody who's deeply in that world, he's like, you know, some of these picking robots and warehouse robots are incredible, but like, all you need to stump them is put down a two by four. And they just don't know what to do. So there is just a, so when tr people are trying to figure out what is the threat here? What are the benefits? What are the threats? What we should be concerned about? It's a little bewildering because some of it works incredibly well. And other times you're just like, you know, as people like to say, you know, autocomplete is still doesn't work correctly or, you know, Siri can't understand me. And I think it's important for us as a society, really, to understand what's working and what's not. And that's part of what the book seeks to do, is really show people what we mean when we say artificial intelligence. It's such a misleading term. It gets applied to everything. And just those two words evoke you know, images of science fiction and, you know, those types of bots you talk about. And, you know, very quickly, all those ideas enter our mind when we hear that term. And the reality is a little different. But at the same time, the technology we have is progressing at an enormous rate. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to see the areas where it really is starting to work. And face, face recognition is a great example, right? Yeah. Where we've had so much progress and it can be really, it can be used in these pointed ways. And at the same time, it can be flawed, right? It can be biased, for instance, against certain parts of the population, and that can raise concerns. So that's what I try to do in the book. And I think that's what we all need to do is, is try to better understand what's happening and piece apart what's working from what's not. Well, so that, and that's why I think it's really interesting to the choice to kind of just focus on the people actually building this stuff. Because their philosophies obviously drive how they're developing the technology. 
So I wonder if you could talk about Demis Hassabis, who's the founder of DeepMind, which is a really interesting company and quite key in all of this and, you know, kind of his driving philosophy of what he thinks and where he thinks this is going. It's interesting. These are very idealistic people. The two main characters, so to speak, in the book are Jeff Hinton and Demis Hassabis, and they share a lot of views technologically, but their views also diverge. Hinton describes Hassabis in the book as somebody who's like Robert Oppenheimer. And he has a very specific meaning there. What he means is, is that like Oppenheimer, Demis is a scientist. He understands the technology and he's trained as a neuroscience, right? So he's not, he's not a, just an entrepreneur who doesn't understand what's going on scientifically. He's a scientist himself, but at the same time, he's able to move people. He, in his own way, is this charismatic person who knows how to push people towards these very extreme goals that he has. And his goals are extreme. The stated mission of DeepMind is to build what Demis and his colleagues call artificial general intelligence. And what they mean by that is a machine that can do anything the human brain can do. Yeah. And do it and do it better effectively. And do it yeah. better potentially, right? Because you've got computing power behind it. Now, what I will say in the spirit of let's define our terms and understand what's really happening versus what is not, he and his colleagues don't necessarily know how to get there, right? It is an aspiration. And we're a long way from a machine that can do that. But that is what he is trying to do. And along the way, he and his colleagues have achieved some really significant advances that are also incredibly ambitious and that many people thought were much further away than they really were. Just before we get to some of that, I think it's interesting also, there's another moment in the book where DeepMind is up for sale and Google wins that auction too. They pay, I think, $650 million for the company. What year was that? 2014 is when they... Um, so two years after they bought Hinton and or acquired Hinton's company. But there's a little factoid in there that you dropped in there that I just found fascinating is that Facebook obviously was, I was always racing with Google. They offered to pay twice as much. It, they did, at least to the individual founders of DeepMind. And it shows you how this arms race quickly escalated. Ground zero was that moment in Lake Tahoe, 2012. Three people go for $44 million. Two years later, DeepMind, with about 40 employees, goes for $650 million. And no revenue. No revenue. And Google didn't even want the product they were making, which, by the way, was some sort of fashion app. Right? That was just sort of jettisoned. It's all about the talent. Yeah. DeepMind and Demis very early on started buying up, essentially, these researchers that specialized in neural networks. There weren't that many of them, as I said. They started buying up people who had studied in Canada mostly or in the UK, other parts of Europe. And so they were inside, these, these researchers were inside this tiny little startup in London when these giant tech companies from across the globe start getting interested in this. And what Demis has said, and this is in the book, uh, and this comes from one of his co-founders as well, is they realized they couldn't really hang on to that talent in the face of the economic power from these tech giants. They kind of had to sell themselves. 
And Google was in the mix. Facebook was in the mix. They ended up going with Google for various reasons. What are the reasons? Like I said, these are idealistic people. And one of the things that Demis and his co-founders wanted when they sold to a big company were a couple of conditions. They wanted a clause in the contract that said their technology would not be used for military purposes. And they wanted another that said basically a kind of oversight board would be put in place to govern their AGI, their their machine that can do anything the brain can do once that's in place to make sure. This thing they didn't even know, they, they weren't even sure they could make. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, they wanted a, claw, a clause in place that would say, we, we're going to have some some outside oversight to make sure this technology isn't misused. Google was willing to agree to those two clauses. And that's that's basically why they sold, sold to Google. Right. And what's so interesting is that, was it four years later, the Project Maven thing kind of emerges, which is this Google contract to advise the Pentagon or or rather to basically provide AI to the Pentagon for its drone program to it's not clear to do exactly what, but potentially to increase the lethality of the drone program or the effectiveness, um, which became a massive, massive issue at Google. And they basically, they eventually pulled out. And that is an important moment. It shows the tension that is really evident in the second half of the book, in the second half of this past decade. And it's not just about DeepMind and their ideals. It's about Hinton. And his ideals and the ideals of people like him. Hinton actually was in the U.S. in the 80s developing this technology, ended up leaving and going to Canada because he didn't want to take money from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department. Right. He literally left the country, went to Canada with his wife. Then he moves into Google. So you've got him and the DeepMind folks moving into Google. They're at the heart of this technology they don't want their technology used for military purposes. And then, in essence, Google is starting to do that. You're right. They, they sign a contract with the DOD. It's basically to identify objects in drone footage. Yeah, It's on a path towards those autonomous weapons we talked about. And you're right. Many at Google end up protesting this, including the founders of DeepMind. I was I was there in London when this was going down. They were very much opposed to it. And in the end, Google did pull out of that contract. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. And that gets to, and I know we're jumping around a bit, but it just kind of, that leads to this kind of this whole idea. And I would be curious for your take on this. Of You know, it's, it's often billed as an arms race, an AI arms race between us and China. And that, you know, if you look at what Google has been doing, they've just been collecting brains. If it sounds like, you know, just finding the best people and paying exorbitant amounts of money to make sure that they have them inside their tent working on this stuff. China is doing the same. And do you think that I this idea, which is a can be um, a bit dystopic, especially as you see some of the stuff start to make it out into the world, is this idea of like, this is a race for AI supremacy. I don't know if that's helpful or if that's the right way to think about it. I mean, wh- how do you view that? I think you need to start with that framework. And I think you're right. It is about acquiring the talent. There are three things you really need in this area, if we're talking in broad strokes. You need the talent, the people who know how to build this stuff. You need the data. We talked about that. These systems train on data. You need massive amounts of data, whether it's sounds, images, text, other data. The big companies have that. The Googles and the Microsofts, and the Baidus in China have that data. And then you need processing power. You need computer processing power at data center scale. So these giant buildings filled with computers and computer chips to analyze all that. Now, China is in a good place. They've got a huge population. That means that, you know, in the long run, they're going to produce a lot of talented AI researchers. and And they also have the data because of that population. In this day and age, a large population is going to produce more digital data along those lines. And that's really a concern for a lot of people in the U.S., for instance, and other parts of the world. But this arms race, as people like to call it, is a lot more complicated than it might seem. This isn't sort of the the geopolitics of the 1950s. You can't necessarily think about, you know, amidst this arms race, you know, cracking down on exports uh, to your rival, cracking down on immigration of your rivals, researchers into your country. We live in this global world where so many of these ideas we've been talking about are openly shared. Jeff Hinton, as we talked about, was an academic. So many of the people who followed him into these big companies were academics, and they wanted to openly share their research. And that's what they ended up doing. It really changed the way Google and Facebook and others operated. And they share all their latest advances in the form of research papers. And what that means is 
everyone on earth has access to that, whether it's Chinese researchers or American researchers or UK researchers. And it becomes more about the talent uh, and the computing power and the data, like I said. And part of the talent here in the U.S., and let's let's not skip past this point, is Chinese talent. Right? Mm. We rely very much on immigrant research. Yeah. So many of the people in my story, in my book, uh, are, are immigrants to the U.S. Jeff Hinton himself. Yep. Right? He, he and so many others were in Canada or in the U.K. or Europe. Um, came from other places. The U.S., including Google, as it was working on Project Maven, relied on Chinese-born researchers. So we don't necessarily want to, to stop that flow. Uh, here in the U.S., we'd just be shooting ourselves in the foot. And this idea, because, you know, uh, again, just the very term artificial intelligence lends itself to this idea of, you know, the Terminator, HAL 9000, whatever. But as you lay out there, in this kind of universe of the big companies and researchers and academics, there's kind of two organizations within this world who are really, who I've stated very baldly, we are trying to develop artificial general intelligence. And that's DeepMind and OpenAI. And I was wondering if you just kind of lay out what AGI is how that is viewed now, today, 2021, relative to even 2012, when at the start of the book, because it feels like whenever you talk to people in this world, half of them are like, it's ridiculous. That's not happening. This is decades away, if it's even possible to no, no, this is a thing. And it's coming faster than you think. And you know, run for run for your lives. <laughs> well, well said. Uh, you know, there's a reason that my chapter, which focuses on AGI in the book, is titled Religion, right? This is about a belief. And some people have a belief that AGI is on the way, and some people don't. Some people really push back on that and really approach that term with a lot of skepticism. What happened in the wake of Jeff Hinton, for instance, moving into Google, DeepMind being acquired, is that industry, at least, kind of took hold of that idea. When another researcher named Andrew Ng was, was pitching a lot of these same ideas directly to Larry Page, I've seen his pitch. He talked about neural networks as a path you know, to this, this AGI idea. And a, and a system that would behave in every respect like the brain. Who knows, you know, how much the people at the top of these big companies really bought that. What we do know is that Mark Zuckerberg did not buy it. From the beginning, he really pushed back against that idea uh, with a guy named Jan LeCun, who's another key researcher in his area, sort of on his shoulder. There was this key meeting over dinner at Zuckerberg's house between Zuckerberg and Elon Musk where they, they sort of have it out, you know, representing the two sides that you talked about, the believers and, and the non-believers. Elon Musk is very much a believer when it comes to you know, saying that this technology is on the way and saying that it's going to be dangerous. We are, we are quote-unquote, summoning the demon. Right. And Elon Musk uh, certainly has a very large <laughs> megaphone, and, and I think that's a big part of For it. For sure. It's, he was the person saying this, and a lot of people believed what was being said. But 
hopefully in the years since, people have come to realize that it's more complicated than that. And on one level, I think that he is right and others are right to worry about where the technology is going. We've seen much simpler technology behave in ways that are concerning. And certainly as the technology moves towards something more powerful, we need to be aware of where it might go wrong. But at the same time, Elon Musk and the folks at OpenAI and DeepMind don't necessarily know how to get to that ultimate goal. And and really what's happening now is that we're having success in, in very narrow areas. Yeah. And so can you talk about, so I think one of the interesting things in all of this, because a lot of this is when you talk about Elon Musk, he is the kind of the, the ultimate tech showman. He has kind of picked up the the baton from Steve Jobs and been like become like the tech kind of character and also communicating ideas that sound sometimes totally, you know, off the wall. But he is obviously out here saying, you know, this is could be the end of humanity as we know it. He is also building Neuralink, which is effectively trying to jack us in directly into AI with brain implants. And then you have things like DeepMind, who are kind of plowing this furrow every day. And it feels like a lot of what they're doing are, for lack of a better term, stunts, but stunts that show kind of where we are getting. And I was just, if you could just describe, for example, the AlphaGo moment, which I think everybody listening to this podcast generally knows about, but some of the detail there I think is really interesting in terms of what happened and kind of what some of the players after felt about kind of losing to this machine and, you know, the effects that that had. That was an amazing moment. And that's when I decided to write the book. I was in Seoul, South Korea. Oh, you went, you were there for it. It was unbelievable. What I often say is that it was one of the most amazing weeks of my life. And I wasn't even a participant. I was just an onlooker. For those who don't know, the folks at DeepMind, led by Demis Asabas, built a machine to play the ancient game of Go, which is the Eastern version of chess, only it's exponentially more complex than chess. And at the time, this is 2016, most people in the, in the world of Go, which, by the way, is very big in, in Asia, including Korea and China and Japan, and, and most people in the AI world thought that a machine that could beat the best players of the game of Go was still decades away. Well, DeepMind built a system, took it to Seoul, challenged Lee Seidel, who was really the best Go player of the last decade, and beat him. And one of the reasons it was, it was amazing was that you had a whole country, Korea, focused on this match. Like, like the Super Bowl. Like the Super Bowl, but almost bigger, right? You also had 60 million people in China watching online and however many millions uh, elsewhere in the world. And it was man versus machine. So the whole country was behind one, one side of this, right? It's not as if it was split. And as the machine won game one and then won game two in remarkable fashion in this best of five match, you could feel the air come out of the country. Part of what's going on there is that, you know, it's a simple setup, you know, man versus machine. It's a game. We all understand that. So it was a, a real showcase for what was happening with this technology. The technology was improving and we could see it improve and you could see the system behaving at a level that was well beyond even its creators. Demis Asabas is a, is a smart guy, um, to say the least, but 
there were these moments when even he was confused by what the system was doing. You know, it had reached a point where it's beyond its creators. It's beyond you know this this very human player who's across the table from it, the best Go player of the last decade. That's frightening to all of us. So all these emotions are wrapped up in that. It was a real inflection point for the technology and received a lot of attention. I think rightly so, because the technology really was improving. But what people needed to realize in the moment and maybe started to realize later is that a game is not reality. And there was a big moment with a game in 2016. And we've seen a lot of a lot of improvement in technologies that use that same idea that was at the heart of that Go machine. And we've seen them improve in, in certain ways. But that Go machine is not sentient, right? It is not AGI. It's it's built specifically for a game. And as you try to get that technology out into the world, into a self-driving car, for instance, or other types of robotics or whatever else it may be, it's going to be limited. Right. Like that AlphaGo machine couldn't, you know, take a robot arm and, and have it unload a dishwasher. It can't. It can't. But what we do see is that some of the ideas at the heart of AlphaGo, really that core idea, a neural network, is helping to push robotics forward. So they're related. But when we when we see a machine do what it did in Korea, again, because of decades of watching science fiction and reading science fiction and that term artificial intelligence, we imagine that it has reached our level, not just with games, but with everything else. And that's just not the case. And it was move 37, right? Move 37 in the second game. And basically what that signifies is the machine with that move did something that most human players would not do. There was a 1 in 10,000 chance that a human player would make that move. And the machine knew that, right? It knew that the chances that a, a top human would make it were slim, and it made the move anyway because it knew that it was good. And that's what's interesting, right? How did it get to that point where it knew that that chance would be 1 in 10,000? Like, how many games had AlphaGo played in its kind of, let's call it its mind, before it played Lee Sedol, because I think that's what kind of gets to the heart of how these things work. Absolutely. And again, we go back to a neural network. In this case, you have a neural network, this mathematical system, and you feed it thousands of Go moves from real human players. They don't have to be great players, just decent human players. We have records of all this. And the neural network analyzes all those moves, and it learns the patterns. And you, you also input the rules of the game, right? And how you win, how you lose, et cetera. Exactly. And it's, it's moving towards essentially acquiring the most space on the board, right? That's, that's the function. But essentially, that neural network learns to play the game of Go at a decent level based on human moves it's looked at. Then you duplicate it. So you have two versions of this system you've built, and you have it play itself. And it plays itself millions and millions of times. And that's how it gets to the level well beyond even the best players. Right. And what was so interesting, and I can't remember if it was Lisa Dahl or somebody else, another kind of, maybe it was the Chinese player who also lost. And by the time the AlphaGo played that player, it's like, I think Demis Sasaba says in the book, he's like, oh, AlphaGo's way better than it was when he played Lisa Dahl because it's played itself millions of more times. 
And when when it beat the Chinese player, I think it was this Chinese player who said, you know, basically, or maybe it was Lee Sedell as well, after like, this is like a godlike machine, but also the moves it makes were so unexpected that's actually made me a better player, which felt like a little silver lining and like maybe we won't be the slaves to the machines. Maybe they will kind of help us reach new levels of doing whatever it is we want to do. That's a very real phenomenon. So I saw it in Korea, but also a year later, DeepMind took AlphaGo to China, a little a little town south of Shanghai, to play a 19-year-old Chinese Go player who was then the absolute best player in the world. And they'd had, a, had another year to keep training the system. And at that point, it had played several matches online, and so people had a year to watch this this machine play the game. And when I got to China, several top players were there at this this tiny water town, as they call it, this ancient uh, Chinese town on the canals south of Shanghai. These top players had changed the way they played the game. You could just see it in the way that even they would make their opening moves. They were imitating the machine. The machine had given them new avenues to play. That is a very real phenomenon. But what had also happened in that year is that the machine had gotten so good that these players had no chance against it. You know, at least in Korea, Lee Seedol did take one game, right? He he made this transcendent move of his own in, in the fourth game, move 78. But in China, a year later, the human players just had no, no chance. Right. And then so when we're th- talking about today... Because a lot of this technology, you know, when it works really well, you kind of don't think about it. It's just like it becomes, it's like this piece of magic that people get used to and then it's a thing. Like, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but even just in my life as a reporter, the basically free transcription of interviews, voice transcription, like I use this company, Otter AI, nine bucks a month. And it transcribes everything. I never have to hand transcribe another interview in my life, which is revolutionary for me as a journalist. I'm sure you agree. But where should we be thinking about, okay, where is this? Where are we most likely to see the next advances or where are they already happening? Is that in, I don't know, self-driving cars? Is it with, you know, the, this melding of biology and AI and people kind of pointing these systems at, you know, at the molecular level to understand how cancer works and developing drugs. Do you have a sense of where a lot of the energy is focused now with this stuff? You've pinpointed two of the big areas. So robotics is certainly one, including self-driving cars, and we've talked about that. One other one that we've talked about is natural language understanding. So the chatbots is the real example there, like a machine that can carry on a conversation or understand human language in other ways. That There's Real progress there, driven by OpenAI, the lab we talked about, and, and other big labs at Google. The third area is is the other one you mentioned, the biological sciences. In the fall, DeepMind had another big result. And we talked about Go being a game and that not being the real world. But in the fall, they cracked another problem called the protein folding problem. And this is something else that scientists thought wouldn't be cracked for decades to come. It's essentially a a biological sciences problem that can help us deal with a virus like we've had to deal with over the past year. So it's a way of creating medicines or 
repurposing medicines, for instance. And the hope is that because of this result, driven by a neural network, that allows us to kind of better understand how parts of the body interact and how medicines bind with parts of the body, can help us if the next pandemic comes along and help us not only create new medicines, potentially, but repurpose the medicines we already have. So when you have medicines that are already approved for use in the human body, can you take those and apply them to a new condition? That that result points at least in that direction. And there's been other progress in that area. It's unclear you know, how far along we are, how much further we have to go in these areas, but it, there is progress. The other thing I wanted to cover is just you and you cover it in the book and then a lot has happened since then um is bias you talk about how you know a lot of these people a lot of the people in this field are you know fundamentally optimistic and they're kind of creating these tech, incredibly powerful technologies and then all of a sudden it gets out in the world and you're like oh well i don't think about that whoops but i've had timnit gebru on this podcast i've had joy bulamwini on this podcast and they both, of course, have done a lot of work around the bias and facial recognition, for example, because a lot of these data sets are mostly white men. So, you know, Amazon's system is almost getting near perfect for if you're a white guy, it can recognize you. If you're a woman of color, it's like 30 times worse or whatever the number is. It's dramatic, the difference. What is your sense of just how the industry and especially, you know, Google, which has just fired Gebru and Meg Mitchell and their whole kind of ethical AI team. What do you think of that, like the actual attitude toward, okay, we've got to do this. We've got to do this right. We've got to do it carefully. We've got to accept criticism, like, because this stuff, you know, where it works, it's extremely powerful, but it does feel like there's some big problems that are emerging now. It's true. And this is the clash at the second half of my book, right? The uh, Tim Neat is a character in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joy is. Uh, Meg is, right? You have, again, people, individuals clashing with the aims of companies, right? You saw it with Project Maven, and you see it again here with the bias issue, where you have people who are concerned about these things, and their concern is clashing with the, the direction and the aim of these giant public companies who are driven by the profit motive. And it's not just about face recognition, which you mentioned. It's also about these chatbots and this and this language technology that I mentioned before. Now, that trains on internet data. We all know the internet can be biased. You know, it's we all know it's full of hate speech and that those things can can pop up in these systems because they fundamentally train in that way on that data. At the same time, they're becoming more and more powerful. The systems are helping to improve the Google search engine, and it's improving chatbots and all sorts of other technologies. And so there's this real desire to get the technology out. At the same time, the bias is endemic. It's just how these systems are built. And so there's a real clash there, and it's unclear how that's going to play out, how is Google, for instance, or Microsoft going to deal with that bias issue? There's no good way of solving it at the moment. You like you can't take the bias out. It's baked into the system because of how they train. You can kind of put band-aids on it, you know, put filters on it and say, you know, 
put up a stop sign when this word comes up, but that's imperfect. And it's really about testing the systems once they're trained and, and do they misbehave in certain cases. But the amount of data these things train on, the amount of people who are using them, the ways that they're used is so vast, it's hard to, to deal with all the edge cases. And do you have a sense, I mean, because I know like OpenAI, for example, started as a nonprofit, Elon Musk funded it. And then it, as you cover in the book, it's like, it's kind of turned into something else by necessity. But what is it? I'm just trying to figure out kind of what the answer is here. Because if if this technology is driven by companies who are driven by their bottom line, it's hard to understand if, if they're ever going to be operating in fully in good faith of like, let's actually make this technology that is the best for society rather than what's the most expeditious for our profits. Well, again, this is another good reason to discuss those EU regulations, right? It's not just the companies that are powerful here. We need to think about you know, this as a society, and that includes regulators. And it includes regulators across the globe. As we also discussed, this is a global technological revolution. It's not happening in one country. All these governments um, in various parts of the world need to think about this and how to regulate it, where the concerns are. And, you know, I can't say this, this strongly enough. It's very much a, a global issue. If one country, for instance, bans autonomous weapons, that's not going to stop the rest of the world from building autonomous weapons. So you can, you can get an imbalance. We really need to think about this as a society as a whole. Yeah. And so after spending... I don't know. How long did you spend writing this book? A few years? A couple of years? Yeah, it's been been years. Yeah. Uh, I first pitched it when I got back to Korea. So that's 2016. You know, here we are in 2021. You know, I don't know if you assign a percentage to it, but how? what's the balance between your optimism versus your pessimism in relation to this technology as, you know, it rolls out into the world? Because as you cover in the book, there's a lot of kind of AI winters, let's call them, where it's like, you know, we are going to create this techno magical technology that is going to do all of these things and then it never delivers. And it's starting to deliver in different ways. But as we just discussed, there's lots of issues that come with that. So where where do you sit in terms of the pessimism versus optimism scale? Well, you know, it's funny how it sort of goes back and <laughs> forth, right? Um, and I think the good news is that Society is becoming, and including government regulators, a little bit more aware of what's going on. And it's hard, it's hard to understand this stuff, frankly. And these are new areas. And if you're a regulator, you know, it's hard to get up to speed on it. And it's changing again, right? And that's, that's one of the problems here. But people are becoming more aware of, for instance, the bias issue. Yeah. They're becoming more aware of where this might be a problem in terms of autonomous weapons and the like. So at least we have a better understanding of the landscape. The tricky part is figuring out how to deal with it, especially as the technology, like I said, continues to improve and you have these very large public companies behind it. They're not slowing down. No. Um, and before I let you go, I just wanted to... Um ask you to describe a scene or two in the book, which has stuck with me. One of them is a room somewhere, I think it was near Google, where they were training robotic arms to pick stuff up. 
and they would just let them kind of learn as they went. But um, could you describe what what was happening there and uh, and how it was working? It's a good thing to pinpoint because again, it shows people what's going on with this technology. We talked about AlphaGo basically playing games against itself to learn the game of Go. And that's a, a process that researchers call reinforcement learning. And basically, the system learns by trial and error. It makes move after move after move. It sees what fails and, and what works. And eventually, it learns in a very pointed way what works and what doesn't. And you can apply that same idea to robotics, and so it was a lab in Mountain View, California at Google. And this researcher named Sergey Levine relates this story in a great way. Basically, what they did is they had a room filled with robotic arms and they put them in front of bins of random stuff. And this is an important application because this is what you have in an Amazon warehouse, right? You've got all these goods coming in and they've got to be shipped back out and you've got bins of random stuff and you need people today to sort through them. But ideally, Amazon wants robots to do that task. But it's a hard task for a robot to, to recognize and pick up a bunch of random things. But what they did at Google is they would put the, these bins of random stuff in front of the robots and let them learn by trial and error, literally. So you had these arms, you know, with these two claw-like, you know, metal grippers try and fail over and over and over again to pick this stuff up. And there's this great moment which uh, Sergey describes where, you know, one of the objects in one of the bins was a, a lipstick, right, which whose cap came off. And they walked into the, the lab on a Monday morning and it looked like there was blood all over the lab, <laughs> and, you know, that someone had been horribly murdered there, you know, in this Google building in Mountain View, California. But it was indicative of the way these systems learn. And what he liked to say was that if things had gone horribly wrong like that, they knew they were on the right track. Right. And you, you, and I just think it, it feels like the opening of a movie or something where there's this, this kind of room with a bunch of boxes and then people walk in after the weekend. There's just literally stuff strewn everywhere. Like what happens to my any room in my house after my kids have been there for five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In this case, the kids with the robotic arms, <laughs> right? Learning the way that your your kids learn. And how did that end up? Did the arms get better? Well, this is one of the areas where we're seeing real progress. Mm. And eventually, you know, the story gets to a company built by another researcher named Peter Abiel, who is actually a colleague of, of Sergey Levine's at Berkeley. Mm. And Peter and some of his other Berkeley colleagues have built a company to do this very thing in warehouses. And I published a piece in the Times recently about this warehouse in Germany where they have installed this type of system, that it's starting to do that very thing. Uh, so it's an, an example of where the technology is not only working, but really working well and can be deployed in the real world. And they've even develop new ways of training the system. So Peter Abiel's system doesn't have to train in the real world. It doesn't have to pick up that lipstick and splatter this red <laughs> lipstick all over the room. It actually trains in the digital world for the most part. In so VR. It can train. You got it. Um, right. In essence, it can train um, on a virtual representation of our world, and then it works in the real world. And which is so wild because the virtual world is actually not touching anything, which, of course, is the most important function. 
here. It's remarkable, right? And and that's always been the promise is that you can do this this stuff in the virtual world and then apply it in the real world. And that's the hope with self-driving cars. Right. But that, of course, is much more complicated. There's a lot more at stake. Uh, so we're not there yet. But when it comes to that problem in the warehouse, it's really starting to work. And then lastly, and, I, and then I promise I'll let you go, the Rubik's Cube, which again is the other image that has just after reading the book, it's the it's the bloody room of robot arms, and it's the Rubik's Cube that have stuck with me. So if you could just explain, because I think that, again, it also gets to how these systems train and why, if you're on the religious spectrum of AGI is coming, you can kind of s- start to see the outlines of why people believe that. It's another re- good image. I'm glad you brought this up. So imagine a five-fingered robotic hand sitting near a window at the OpenAI lab in San Francisco. And this was now uh, about two years ago, but a researcher can come across you know, the lab, place a Rubik's Cube in, the, in this robotic hand, and in a matter of minutes, this five-fingered hand can solve the Rubik's Cube. But what is interesting again, is how they built this. It trains in the same way that Peter O'Beal's warehouse robots train. It trains in the virtual world. So you have a virtual robotic hand, you have a virtual Rubik's Cube, and in computing time, meaning you know the time executed by the processor, it trains in this virtual world over thousands of years trying to solve this Rubik's Cube by trial and error and failing time and time again, but eventually getting to the point where it can solve it. And um, it's remarkable to just see this, Um, but it's even more remarkable when you peel that back and look at how it was built. That's important, is that these are systems, and we've been talking about this for an hour now, these are systems that learn rather than relying on engineers to tell them what to do. You could never build a robotic arm that could do that on your own. I don't care how many engineers you get into the room, you can't have this team of engineers define everything, every tiny movement that hand would have to make to solve the Rubik's Cube. It's just not possible. But we now have systems that allow that arm to learn the task. That's what's important. That's why it stuck with me because it's also, again, it gets this idea of like you're creating, it's virtual reality, but somehow it's also not only learning what it takes to solve a Rubik's Cube, but also the dexterity of moving the actual physical object without actually having to do it in the real world. And then in the real world, it actually works. And that's a more remarkable thing than people might realize. And this is the problem with deploying this stuff in the real world is that there's so much chaos in the world. There's so much uncertainty. But the way that they built this system to deal with that is so fascinating. Basically, they, they introduced problems in the virtual world. They would, they would train with the hand big and small, and they would increase friction and decrease it and just sort of throw curveballs into the training constantly. And in learning in that virtual chaos, the system could deal with similar chaos in the real world. It's bananas. <laughs> that's, it really is. <laughs> that's my professional opinion. Well, look, it's, it's fascinating. The book is called Genius Makers. I have it here. 
very dog-eared. And so we were supposed to do this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, I'm sure you understand as the weeks go by and you get pulled into stories and I wasn't able to finish them. But I'm really glad we got to do this. It's a fascinating book. Everybody should read it. And um, yeah, thank you for taking the time. Glad to do it. It was fun. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Cade for taking the time. I want to thank you all, as ever, for listening and giving all those ratings and reviews. Keep rolling in, which, of course, I know you've done already. And, of course, if you haven't, you're doing right now. Because, as I've said ad nauseum, it helps other people find the show, which means I can keep doing the show. So please take a moment and do that if you haven't. Um, I will be writing about a whole bunch of stuff in the Sunday Times this weekend, so do check me out there at thetimes.co.uk. You know, I tweet from time to time at Danny Fortson. Or email me with any questions, concerns, uh, abuse. Please keep it gentle at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it. See you next week. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.